This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also Billion Moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14-day free trial now at mydukan.io. Hey, you dropped out of school to go full-time at Wellsimple, which is one of the best companies over here. I went to their office, pretty cool office, and recently raised $4 million for venue. So let's get into this. Let's first dive into your background. So you mentioned that you come from a financially poor background. How was it like growing? Um, so I was born in China and uh, most of my family, um, they were uneducated. So my grandparents, uh, they're farmers from a poor region of China. And my parents, both my mom and dad were born into the same, at the same circumstances. Um, and I think growing up, it was very much instilled in them that they needed to get an education so that they can kind of crawl out of that poverty. Um, so my mom and dad, they worked, they worked very hard in school in China until you know, they found their way into the cities. And um, my mom, it was my mom who decided that she wanted to bring me to Canada. So after she gave birth to me, uh, she wanted a better life for me than that she had growing up. Uh, so she, uh, she took me um, by herself to Canada. Uh, she found a job in Canada as a software engineer. Um, but she never learned software engineer on her own. She uh, she kind of like just learned it through books. Wait, that's crazy. That so your background, like your grandparents, they were sort of in the role of farmers and then your mom came to Canada and she became a software engineer? Yeah, so it's like, it's uh, really impressive on her end, right? Like I remember growing up and um, like I wasn't, you know, I never went hungry, but yeah. there were definitely days where like I was given a bun and a, and a green onion to like just chew on for dinner. Um, but my mom, uh, she had it much worse. Uh, she grew up like hungry, like more often than not. Um, and when she moved to Canada, she spent six months uh, reading a book on C++ and she sent her application to companies like all around Canada until eventually um, she found a job in Moncton, New Brunswick and she was in Toronto. So she then moved again from um, like a little room that she was renting in Toronto um, and moved to uh, New Brunswick. And after she worked there for you know, a year, two years, I got a bit of money uh, and then bought a house and then she flew me over from China. That is crazy. That is crazy. And let's talk about then your university. Like what was your thought process when picking up, okay, what stream to go into? Uh, I think that's one of the things I didn't like about uh, how supportive high school was. They hmm. didn't really give me many resources to learn about which programs were um, like suitable for the things I was good at. They didn't really teach me about like, oh, like, you know, if you take this program, you're likely to get this kind of job, you're likely to make this much money. Um, so all I could really go off of is like what my parents were telling me, right? Hmm. They were like, uh, you should be a doctor or a lawyer or engineer. So I was like, okay, um, engineering sounds like it's right up my alley. Uh, so I looked at engineering programs um, and I really didn't know the difference, right? Like what's the difference between mechanical engineer or like hmm. a civil engineer? Um, so I just, I didn't want to choose a specific stream. So I wanted a program that was more flexible that, or so I could kick the can down the road effectively. And, um, engineering science was one of those programs. Uh, and at the time it was considered, uh, the hardest program to get into in Canada. Um, and I figured, okay, like can't really go wrong with that as long as they'll accept me. Um, so I got my acceptance like pretty late. It was like, I think a week or two before, um, the, uh, I had to, I had to make a decision. 
so yeah, that's the program I ended up choosing. Uh, in hindsight, I probably should have chosen like software engineering at right. Waterloo or something. Yeah. But, but you know, I had no idea. I was too young. You ended up doing the pretty much same thing, right? Like you did a bunch of internships. That's what Waterloo is known for. Like just doing, starting to get into internships. Even for me, like I chose nanotechnology because it just sounded cool. I didn't want to just get pigeonholed into chemical or civil. So I chose nano and we were learning our cool stuff, quantum physics, quantum computing. It's all dope stuff. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about your internships and deciding to go full-time at WellSimple and just dropping out. Yeah, so my first internship was at IBM after first year university. And um, I don't think I passed the interview. Um, I did pretty poorly, but the man the manager that was gonna uh, that was interviewing me and ended up hiring me, he was very impressed because after the interview, I spent a few hours writing up a solution, like those three pages, uh, explaining like why this, uh, even though I didn't get the solution during the interview, I, like I ended up figuring it out and I, I explained in detail like why I think this is the best solution and I sent it to him afterwards. And he just loved that I had that uh, motivation to solve the problem, even though like the interview has passed and he ended up hiring me because of it. Um, so that was internship number one. Internship number two was after second year and I initially accepted a 16 month internship from IBM. So going back to IBM, but on a different team. Uh, but after I accepted it, um, I had a few roommates who were talking about how they wanted to take their 16-month internship. So at UFT, they called it PEY. Hmm. Instead of doing it at one company, they wanted to try and split it up, which is not something the school really supports you doing, but they'll allow it if you find those internships yourself. So I figured like, okay, why don't I just give it a try? I already accepted, but um, you know, you don't have options until you have offers. So uh, I applied to a company called Shopify. Um, at the time, no one knew about it. It was my okay. roommate. It was my roommate who told me about Shopify, and he said, "Yeah, like people have been saying great things about them. They're like a 400, 500 person company. Uh, I'm gonna apply." So I thought, "Okay, I'll apply too." And they ended up giving me um, an internship. So then I had to go back to IBM, like my manager, and ask them, "Like, is it okay if I just change it to a four month internship because I really want to do some other things over the next year?" And he mm. surprisingly was very okay with it. He uh, he wasn't upset. He just said, "Hey, look, like." We're not gonna force you to do something you don't want to do. So yeah. if this is what you want, we're happy to support you. So I ended up breaking it up into four internships: um, one at IBM, uh, two different ones at Shopify, so one in Ottawa, one in Toronto, and then I did another four month um, at Dynadot, which is a web registrar uh, over in the Bay Area. That's pretty cool, man. I know like a lot of people at Toronto, they feel like they got stuck with the 16 month internships, but you were able to figure that out. That's cool. And yeah, then when did you find about WellSimple? So WellSimple was, um, was after third year and it was really just a stroke of luck. Um, what happened after the, my PY year was I went back to school and I was really disillusioned by it. Uh, after working for so long, school just felt like a big waste of time. I didn't enjoy going to class. I pretty much forgot how to study. So I already wasn't doing that well in my classes. Um, and it was also third year that I started Hacker Six, hmm. um, and the you know the preparation for it started pretty much as soon as school started. So if I'm spending time like researching venues, trying to reach out to um, to sponsors, trying to build a team, having those meetings, it was impossible for me to do that and school well at the same time. So I ended up just not really going to my classes and barely doing the like the minimum to pass. Hmm. Um, so, but I so that's kind of how I prioritized my third year. But I also wanted good internships. So I did apply to some US companies. I figured like, okay, I have like a few internships in my belt. I should, I want to be able to work at a company like Google or Facebook or Amazon. And 
uh, I thought like I was pretty cocky at the time. I thought it was top shit. So I applied to like maybe four or five companies um, that were from the Bay Area, and those were the only ones I applied to. Um, I figured like I must get at least one of them, right? Uh, maybe two or three, and I can take my pick. Um, and it was the internships start I think in May when you're university, right? Hmm. Um, and close to the end of March. Um, I got my like fifth rejection from the companies I applied to, and you know I kind of woke up in the morning with that email and I sat there like, fuck, like what do I do now? Like I have no internship. There's a month left. I'm gonna. I don't. Even if I got an internship, like it'll probably have to be in like Toronto or something, right? Right. So uh, that morning before I went to my classes, I opened Google and I typed in top startups in Toronto, and there was a the first hit was like this web page with a, a list of like 200 companies with like brief descriptions. So I just like I just scrolled. I wasn't even reading. I just scrolled, and on one of the pages that like the scroll stopped was Wellsimple, and it talked about like a financial services company. And I thought like I'm actually really interested in finance. That was one of my favorite courses、um, mm. in my university years. So I clicked into it, and I looked at the job openings, and they were only hiring full time. But I I, I was interested, and、um, I. So、I'm and also desperate.、Player. You were interested <laughs>、yeah. as well as desperate, yeah. <laughs> yeah, interested and definitely desperate.、Um, but like, you know, I read that they were using Ruby on Rails, and、mm. I had some familiarity with that.、Um, I love poker, so and blackjack. So I made some like、uh, software to help count cards, like、uh, blackjack counting simulators, to see if、right. I can actually make money from it. So I, I found their、uh, director of engineering's、um, email. And I just emailed them. I said, "Hey, like, I'm really interested in、uh, working with you guys.、Um, I see that you're financial services and you're Ruby on Rails. Here's a project I built.、Um, I know you have no full. You, I know you only have full-time positions, but would you be willing to open up like a、uh, co-op position for me?" And this was on a Monday morning. So the guy got back to me、um, that same day and said, "Like, are you free to interview、uh, on Tuesday?"、Uh, so I did the interview on Tuesday. They emailed me on Wednesday, telling me that I have an offer. So I signed it the same day, and yeah, within like three days,、um, I had a summer internship. So that was like a huge stroke of luck. Did you feel you were top shit again? <laughs> no, 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 no. I、um, I think that hit to my ego lasted quite some time. I was like, I was like, oh god, like, I mean, it wasn't. I didn't. I was still a bit cocky, but I like, I kind of like my cockiness was definitely getting close to、uh, where I actually was.、Um, you know,、yeah. I don't think I was top shit. Yeah. Uh, so, and you're talking about year 2015, 2016, right?、Uh, this was, yes, this was uh, 2016. Um, so yeah, March of 2016. Okay, because Well Simple now is popular. Well Simple now, everybody uses it, and like everybody knows about it for beautiful design,、uh, the beautiful offices and stuff.、Uh, but at that point of time, I'm guessing it was pretty small. Not many people knew about it, right? Yeah. So when I joined as a as an intern, they had 50-ish employees. And maybe ten. Fifty. Wow. 50,、uh, yeah, maybe like ten to fifteen engineers. I think I was engineer number fifteen. By the time I left, I got I basically got upgraded to engineer number like nine or something because people leave.、Um, yeah. Yeah. So at the time,、um, I don't think my friends knew about Wellsimple. A few people who are really familiar with like the tech and business scene heard of them because Wellsimple sponsors some events,、hmm. but most people didn't know about them. Hmm. Interesting. And let's talk about from well simple to your next thing. I read on your when you were announcing venues raise, you mentioned that about pandemic. That pandemic almost killed your consulting startup code mode.、Uh, how did you go from working at well simple to building your consulting startup? Yeah. So、uh, a few things happened. When I was working at well simple, I was already interested in entrepreneurship, and、hmm. um, I ended up talking to someone who also was co-oping at well simple, who wanted to build. 
like a music platform. It was for licensing instrumental music uh, to help rappers uh, produce music. So the way rap music is produced, um, if you don't have like a dedicated producer or a studio, is you would you would pay a small amount of money to license uh, instrumental track online, and then you would just record your rap over it. Hmm. So that was a cheaper and faster way to produce music if you were like a novice um, and you didn't have like too many resources available to you. So I was like, okay, I mean, like I don't I know nothing about music, but I'm curious. Uh, I want to try some building something, and I didn't really understand business at all at the time. So having a um, a partner that was familiar with the industry was very helpful. Uh, so I started working on that, and this is all after I dropped out of school. Like I decided to stay at Wall Simple for full time. Um, so I worked on that for like maybe a year. Uh, we got some money from OCE, uh, which is the Ontario Center for Excellence. They gave us a grant for like 60k, and um, I was thinking, okay, like maybe maybe it's time to like uh, take it more seriously. That's so a I good got... grant. Like, what did you have at that point of time to apply for this grant? 60k is a lot. You said six zero, right? Yeah, 60k. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I think at the time, like we had an MVP, so it was functional, and we already used the platform ourselves to uh, to sell music. Hmm. So it was working, and I think we wanted to grow it. We wanted to be able to uh, build more features around it and give it to producers to use and sell their music on it. Um, things like onboarding and maybe like studio recording tools. So uh, we tried to raise some money, like beyond the 60k, because 60k like. For grant, it's like a good amount of money, but to live off of is not. Okay. Um, and we had we had uh, four co-founders, mm. so if we want to survive any reasonable amount of time, we needed more money than sixty k because um, we weren't really making good cash flow from the business itself. Hmm. So I went to uh, my mentor uh, and I asked him if he would be willing to invest uh, in this company, and he told me that he would never invest in a company where the founders don't believe in themselves enough to do it full time. So it's like a chicken and egg. We weren't comfortable enough to quit our jobs unless we have funding, but no one would give us money unless we already quit our jobs, right? Um, and this was in like December of 2017. And you know, I sat down with my co-founders and I said like, it's either do it or you don't do it, right? I'm ready to take a plunge. Worst case, I quit my job, doesn't work out, I'll come back, right? Like there's no way I can't find a job. Right. Um, <laughs> And like, I don't think, you know, I don't think tech companies are petty enough these days where like, if you quit for a good reason, like they would uh, not want you to come back and keep working with them. So um, that's what I ended up doing. I quit my job, worked on, uh, worked on this music marketplace for probably about six, seven months. Um, and a few things happened to kind of transition to like, you know, eventually uh, code mode. Um, one was uh, the business was not doing well. After mm. six months, like I built a lot of features. I was the one technical person on the team. Um, I spent a lot of hours coding, but, um, but the product, improvements and not translate to revenue growth or user growth. So I started kind of, I started getting to fights with my co-founder, right? Like, Hey, like I'm building the things you asked for. Why aren't there more users? And the answer was always build more features, uh, which in hindsight is not good advice. Hmm. Um, and at some point we got into a big argument. Um, you know, emotions are very heated and, uh, something just kind of flipped for me. Right. I decided like, this is, I'm not happy doing this. I don't see a future in it. I'm not happy day to day. I don't, I don't understand why I'm still doing this. So within a week, I was like, okay, guys, like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Um, so, you know, we called it quits. Uh, it wasn't really amicable either. And um, I wasn't sure what to do. I, you know, I wasn't ready to just go back to my full-time job yet, but I had some money left over. I had like $10,000 um, saved up from uh, whatever was remaining of my TFSA essentially, because I was draining through my savings for the last six months. 
uh, trying to survive without a job. And I figured, okay, I have $10,000. Let's burn through it because $10,000 in the long run, it's not going to matter. I, I'm going to use it and I'm going to travel. So with that $10,000, I spent $5,000 uh, on LASIK surgery because I figured oh, I'm wow. going to go see the okay. <laughs> I figured if I'm going to see the world, I might as well see it with 2020 vision, you know? Crazy, man. <laughs> yeah. So uh, then the last $5,000, um, I used to travel in Asia for about four months. And I think I got lucky again, right? Like I, I was renting at a place um, closer to the east side, hmm. um, like Corktown. And my landlord was uh, was a web designer. So when I quit my job, um, and so when I when I ended my lease, uh, I, had a, I had a casual conversation with him. He told me he had uh, a design consultancy and he had a project that he wanted a developer for. And I'm like, hey, that's me. So nice. when I was traveling, I started working on this contract and the income was good enough for me to live in Asia forever if I wanted to. And right? when you say and, Asia, what particular region? Um, I started in Cambodia and then went to Vietnam. And at the time that like the contract was really picking up, it was in Thailand. Uh, nice. So I spent a month at a Muay Thai boot camp in Thailand and my day was basically wake up, train, eat, take a nap, train, work, sleep. Right. That's dope. Nice. Love that routine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So like the contract kept growing, right? Because initially I was hired for like an MVP, but um, the end client, they, they liked the work and they saw potential in it. So they invested more money into it. Um, the contract grew and eventually I found other clients. So I figured like, hey, this could actually become a business, right? Right now it's just me as a freelancer, but if I can get, if I can get more sales, then I could hire developers or designers mm-hmm. to help me and turn it into like a lifestyle business. Uh, and I could, and to do that, I figure like, well, I'm not gonna make any sales sitting here in Thailand. I know nothing about online marketing. I don't exactly enjoy cold reach outs. Um, so, I left Asia, went back to Toronto to work full-time on code mode. And yeah, that's kind of how I got there. Interesting. And then you mentioned that during COVID, uh, you were not like you had to kill the consulting startup. Was it directly based on that you were not getting clients as the pandemic started? Um, partially. Yes. So we, I was working on code mode for about a year and a half. And for the first year, it was mostly just me hmm. and, um, and most of the money came from one client. Um, uh, the other ones were like, you know, one-offs here and there, but, uh, a big break came to us, which is like when I, when I brought on a second, uh, when I brought on another co-founder, um, it was like actually my best friend, uh, his name's Richard Yang. He has a great blog about like, uh, UX design. Um, and he's like one of the best designers I know. So I thought, okay, if we have dev and we have design, we can actually do like end-to-end development, right? Instead of me just, um, hopping on a contract, usually led by design, hmm. um, I could now I can now do the sales, like offering the whole suite of services. And uh, we found a really big client. It was um, uh, a company called SGS. They make packaging for like huge global conglomerates. Uh, basically like your toothpaste, for example, it's probably packaged okay. by SGS. Um, and they wanted to, they wanted to transform their operations because the internal tools they were using were, uh, were not intuitive. So it took their, their uh, employees up to like, three to six months to be trained enough to be productive on it. And if they could fix that, if we could train someone in like two weeks instead of like six months, they could save a lot of money. Uh, and that's, so that's why they were willing to put a lot of money into this project. So um, we bid on it, uh, they chose us. So me and Richard, uh, we hired a UX designer and another, uh, uh, another uh, UI designer. And uh, we, yeah, we, you know, we focused most of our resources on that one contract. 
and the contract just kept growing, right? So at this point, we had two big contracts, um, but the issue is the timing of COVID was just so bad. Um, our, our first contract ended around December, so mm -hmm. like December of 2019, 19, yeah. uh, which is fine because at, at that point, the first contract was such a small part of our revenue. It was the mm -hmm. second contract that we were focusing on, right? Um, but with these big contracts, like the first one we got by luck. I didn't know how to really reproduce that. And even if I did, uh, most of these big contracts take a long time to close. Right. So uh, while I was out looking for those, um, we're, yeah, we had 90% of revenue coming from the one client who frankly was like ready to let us go because they know how expensive we are and they wanted to move things in house. Right. And like, if that's their goal, like we're going to help them. We're not going to be like protective of ourselves. Um, that's like, I think that's good business ethics. Hmm. Um, so we helped train their new designer. Um, I don't think one designer would have been enough for them to uh, like finish the project anyways, but then COVID hit. And uh, instead of having the contract go on another three months, which was would have been enough time for us to kind of figure things out, it was just suddenly like with two weeks notice, like, hey, like COVID hit, uh, we are basically shutting off like our coffers for anyone who's a contractor. Uh, everything's being reevaluated. I don't think we can renew the contract. And, you know, I'm just sitting there. We have like three other employees at this point. Um, like, what do we do? Like, I could either, um, I could either take a risk and take whatever's left of code mode, just burn that, um, like burn that cash reserve until it's gone. Um, or I could just, just quit it there. And mm. I could help my, and that's the choice I ended up choosing, right? Because it was unclear how long COVID would take. I, I had very little faith that the world was going to recover quickly and that, or even if it did, I don't think the businesses were going to recover that quickly. Right. So yeah, made a hard decision. Um, I helped all my employees find new jobs within like two weeks or so. Um, and yeah, and then venue happened. It was like also a huge stroke of luck. That's crazy, man. What was the contract value by the way from SGS? Um, I think in total, just from SGS, it was over 500K. 500K? Okay. Yeah, because when you mentioned you guys were expensive for them, I thought it's high, but 500K is a lot. How did how were you able to justify with such a small team? Like, did you have... I don't like some people try to show that... Like, were you actually trying to show that, okay, this 500K is worth it? The value that we are providing is worth it? I Yes, we were, but I think it was very obvious from their end that we're producing results. Uh, hmm. because I think they weren't used to seeing things being turned around like on a daily basis and every week there being huge progress in like you know having mock-ups having full designs and uh, user research being done like we did a lot of UX interviews with their employees um, and I think they the leadership recognized that um, uh, we were doing something that they couldn't do on their own and the amount of money we would save in the long run um, once it's actually built would well justify the amount of money they spent um, and in hindsight, I'll be honest with you. I think we weren't overcharging them. I think we're undercharging them. <laughs> um, at the time, um, we were building like $150 per hour, like Canadian dollars, uh, which now is like for a consulting firm that mm. is ridiculously low. Yeah. You should be charging like at least 300. Uh, yeah. You should be charging lawyer style $800 per hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And depending on who's on the, who's hourly it is, right? Yeah. Like, Exactly. And 500k is not for the entire year, right? It's like four months or five months contract. Um, I don't quite remember. It was, we started the contract in like maybe, I want to say mid 2019 and it went on until early 2021. Okay. Um, and um, and the, the number of hours in the week varied, right? I think it was mm -hmm. like a very between 50 to 150 a week. Um, so depending on like what we had to do during that period. So yeah, in the end it was like, yeah, like it was around 500k or more. 
That's crazy. Okay. And all right. And how much, how much was left in the cash reserve when you thought of quitting if you're comfortable sharing? Uh, I think it was somewhere around a hundred K like in the ballpark of, ballpark of that. Interesting. So let's talk about venue now. Like how did you get, how did you got approached by your mentors and how did you became part of it? Yeah. So, um, when I was right before COVID, actually, right before it hit, I had to sit down with my uh, my mentor, um, and he told me that you know I told him I wanted to grow Code Mode, and he gave me some advice on how to do that. But he said that if um, first of all, I wouldn't recommend that you work on a services-based company because it doesn't scale. And mm-hmm. he gave me some examples of other um, consultancies and how once they reach a certain size, it was very difficult to operate and um, like difficult to get new clients. So he told me like, if this is what you want to do, remember that it's a lifestyle business. It doesn't scale the way a startup does, uh, like a tech startup does. So I was thinking of ways like, okay, how can we transition to becoming a product company? Um, hmm. Had a few ideas, I was exploring them uh, and COVID hit. And around the same time, my mentor and, uh, well, actually two of my mentors, uh, my entrepreneurship mentor and my, my technical mentor, they both approached me and said, hey, like we're working on this new idea and we, we call you, um, having a consultancy. So do you want to work on this? Uh, like we'll pay you and you can build like the MVP. I was like, and, th- and this was right after um, uh, all my employees were laid off. Right. So I was like, okay, well, I mean, I'm just sitting here. I don't, I don't even know what to do. I'm, I have a lot of time. Why not? I would love to work with you guys. Uh, right. These are two people I look up to. Uh, so yeah, so that's uh, I worked on a contract. I think over six weeks I was working like 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, like on code too. Um, and we shipped the product. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, it was a very tight uh, timeline. Uh, but at the end of it, they were like, you know, we're, we love working with you. Uh, you know, we, we believe in you. We think you're a great engineer. And we love to just build this business from you, with you uh, as co-founders. Uh, and uh, that's something I don't think in any universe I could have said no to. It's like, you know, the two people that I really look up to that were my mentors asking me to start a business with them. Um, so, you know, I, I said yes. And that's how Venue became to be. Interesting. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I think I have a very similar, very similar journey getting into my current role, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not invited to be the co-founder. I'm invited to be a good part of the executive team. So very interesting. Now I'm curious that, yeah, you guys actually were building in stealth mode for two years, right? We were, sorry, venue. Yeah. For venue. Yeah. We've been building for just over two years now. We started in, we started writing the first line of code in April of 2020. So yeah, like almost two and a half. Wow. What, what was the initial thought process that, okay, well, what's the goal over here? Because we already had giants like Google, Google Meet and Zoom. Like what was the thought process initially? So initially uh, when COVID hit, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be like a workplace uh, conferencing tool. It was meant to be like a replacement of physical conferences because um, at the time it was very obvious that conferences needed to go online. One, hmm. um, um, our CEO, Jason, he also uh, is the co-founder of TechTO, and that was one of the events impacted, right? He, um, like, TechTO used to pull in, I think, like hundreds of people every month to uh, RBC Waterpark Place, and they would have these big in-person events. So it was really fun, um, and that couldn't happen anymore. So he needed an online solution, and he realized that the existing solutions all suck. So, and he thought, like, I can build something better than this. Uh, and that's kind of how Venue started, right? It was meant to be like many of the uh, online conferencing apps that exist today. Um, but at the time, there just weren't many because people, 
there wasn't a really big space back like pre-COVID. Like, mm. what conference would voluntarily go online when they could be in person, right? Right, right. And also, online conferences might not be enjoyable. You don't know, like, if people would actually sit on their laptop for eight hours looking at different conference talks. Exactly. And would they even pay for it? Like, yeah. that was my question, right? Like, you would pay $500 for a conference ticket in person, but, like, would you pay anywhere even close to that for online, right? Yeah, yeah. Just record a podcast and post it on YouTube. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, like, what was happening in the two years? How did the product evolve? How did the thought process evolve? Yeah, so I think we were focused uh, mainly on replacing conferences for most of 2020. Hmm. And it took us a while before we reached feature parity to a point where um, our clients would use us over a competitor. Because when we started, like, um, we didn't have recording. Um, our chat was very minimal. Uh, there weren't many things that um, would make a client go like, oh, hey, yeah, like, uh, we'll choose you because you have these features that your competitors do not. And it was actually from us building fun things that we just wanted for ourselves that we thought were cool, like experiments. So like the emoji cannon or like adding gifts to the chat, uh, little things like that, or like uh, kind of like games like uh, Random Connections, which is basically Omegle, if you know what that is. Um, it was those features that got the attention of um, some companies that wanted to use it for internal all hands. And when they started using it for like, for all hands, it became apparent that we were actually one of the best tools available for that specific purpose uh, because we were fun. Uh, and that's and when we, as we got more more examples of that use case, uh, we realized this is something we could really lean into uh, because companies were having this issue of all hands being like boring Zoom meetings that no one mm. pays attention to. Right, right. It's funny you mentioned Omegle because I was building a dating startup last year with my best friend in India and Omegle was our inspiration that, hey, how, how can we build something like this where you just come across a potential partner, you start talking and then you swipe right or left. At first you have the experience and then you say whether you want to move forward or not. It's not like just sitting and swiping right all day on screen. But yeah, very interesting. Now, I actually read in TechCrunch. It said that if Slack would have built a Zoom competitor, it would have looked like Venue. So you already mentioned that you guys were doing some things fun, but for people, how did you sort of convey that message that, yeah, we are more fun? Because how do you actually con or sell that message that, hey, we are more fun, so buy Venue, not Zoom? So that's a, that's a really good question because it's really hard to convey fun, right? I can list all the features Venue has and you'll still probably be like, okay, well, like, yeah. Cool, but like, why is it better? Why is it fun? You don't really like, it's like me trying to describe like, um, like a music festival to you, or I try to describe like, like sailing or any really activity that you would consider fun. Right. Um, like, you know, take basketball, right. Oh, what's basketball? Um, you dribble across like the, uh, the field and then you, you know, throw a ball in the hoop. It's like, okay. You know, when you, when you put it that way, nothing really sounds fun anymore. Right. You have to experience it to know why it's fun. Right. And Venue is very much the same. Uh, we have a lot of trouble convincing new clients to to try it. Um, but once they try it, they get it. Uh, mm. They get why it's fun. Uh, so it's like things like live demos help a lot. And, um, and free trials help a lot. So if we can convince them to try us for one all hands, they immediately see a difference. I'll, I'll give an example. Um, one of our clients is Yelp, right? And they love rating things five stars, like out of five. So uh, they're... Before Venue, they were on Hangouts, and their, their the rate at which their employees rated their all hands on uh, Google Meets was, I think, 14%. And 14%? Okay. 14. Wow. So very low. <laughs> After the first use of Venue, it immediately jumped to somewhere in the 40-something 40, 40 percentage. 
Um, so it was like an immediately uh, visible difference and it was measurable. Uh, and as they started using Venue more and more, that number actually started increasing. It didn't decrease. So it's not like, uh, oh, it's a new toy, that's uh, cool. But actually people had a better time using Venue. Hmm. Right, right. That's very interesting. You know, so I when I was researching about this podcast, I was reading that TechCrunch article and I also mentioned to this earlier where you guys mentioned that, yeah, like a all hands meeting would cost a company upwards of $50,000. Now I'm thinking like, how do you make sure that you get the best return out of those $50,000? Because it's pretty much transactional, right? You've got to have an all hands meeting to make people feel like you are being heard, to make people feel a sense of community. Because let's say in a remote world, a lot of people might be working from home. So this is one chance to meet the entire company. So I thought that the best way to get the most return out of this is two things. Number one, if you make it more fun so that people feel more relaxed, they feel more de-stressed and they can work better after that. Or you just give them more energy or more, let's say, drive towards their mission to like, you know, maybe somehow get them more focused, get them more aligned uh, and yeah, get them to go faster. And maybe that's what you are going for. Like when you give them more fun, they feel better. And that's the return on investment that a company is getting. Yeah, I think you hit a few of the points there, right? Um, you want to, people to feel like they align with the vision. And that's like, you know, that, that's part of it, is that's, that's inspiration. Your, yeah. your all hands needs to be inspirational by, um, by talking about like, you know, the bigger picture, talking about like what the vision of the company is, and talking about how the current initiatives fit into that vision and talking about how everyone's work contributes to that, uh, to that vision. But none of that matters if no one's paying attention. Hmm. Right. Um, if someone is cooking their lunch while uh, while they have Zoom open, uh, you're losing that person's participation altogether. So it needs to be fun so that people stay at their computers and actually pay attention to the content. Definitely. And the other thing is uh, you want them to not just listen, but participate. Because if they participate, they feel like a part of the community that is your company. They're part of like this work culture. Right? You want them to participate in the chat. You want them to like make jokes in the chat. You want them to post like funny gifts. You want them to react to like emojis, to things they agree with. Uh, or you know, or things they disagree with, right? And you want them to be able to openly ask questions, like in the um, like in the sidebar, or like you want them to be able to respond to polls. So it's like they feel that they're being heard. It's not just a one-way communication from leadership all the way down to everybody else, but leadership is hearing everything everyone has to say in real time and responding to it. Like things, um, one of the things that go really well in these all hands is when they have open QA where people post questions and they don't shy away from the difficult ones, right? Hmm. A lot of times these all hand QAs, they're very curated mm. in advance. So it's like, they, they will only fill questions that are safe to answer and they'll right. just ignore the rest. But right. when you have a venue, a platform like venue, it's like, you can't, you can't hide those questions. People are going to ask them. And if you don't answer them, people are going to know. Hmm. Makes sense. That's true. And yeah, like, so let's talk about your, one of your customers is Shopify. How did you close that deal? Oh, Shopify was like, I think we started working with them last year. And I don't remember how we closed that one because it was it was some miracle work that Jason did. Okay. Um, but I think we started out as like we, you know, we ran some small events for them, but mm. you know, they liked the engagement they were getting. Uh, they liked the high production value that they were getting from Venue. Uh, so over time, you know, we pushed for them to use us for more meetings. So like for example, their engineering meetings or like their um, their uh, department-wide town halls, um, or even like externally facing events. So, you know, while Venue is built for uh, community, like closed the communities, like within a company, it's also very good for communities that are um, open. So like, uh, for example, Shopify, like merchants, right? Um, 
or like Vegan Woman Summit is also a client. The reason why we don't actively target them is not because Venue does, is not a good tool. Venue is good for any, any close-knit community. Um, the reason we don't target them is because it's not a great return of, on investment for our time uh, because live events, they run like once a year, twice a year, but it, it costs us a lot of time to get them as a client and they use us you know, for one hour or two hours and then they're gone. Hmm. And next year they might not come back, but right. company all hands are recurring. Once you close that client, they're going to keep using us for the rest of the year, every week, like clockwork, right? And how often are all hands meeting happening? Are these happening once a month? All hands are most typically held every week. Every week? Okay. Every week. Yeah. At least on venue. Um, some companies, they host them less frequently, like maybe once a month, but hmm. we encourage once a week and that's what most of our clients do. Hmm. Interesting. I believe like, uh, because you are building a product for all hands meeting, you can also sort of, uh, create a playbook for other companies that, Hey, this is how you ideally do. This is how you can uh, make the most out of it. And these are the best behaviors to make sure you have a good all hands meeting. Basically you can set a structure around it. Yes. Yeah, so that is one of the things we do. Uh, we, we are very hands-on with our early clients. We mm. help them, uh, we help them learn the platform and we help them produce good content. We tell them like, Hey, here's some tips and tricks that our uh, previous clients have, um, have used to make a successful event and you know here's how you can apply them right things i've told you like i'll oh, get engagement from um uh, from employees through polls through questions uh making fun content uh not just like you know talking to a screen but things like uh, we've seen things like hot ones challenges uh we've things seen things like um you know one of the leadership playing guitar on screen just like things that um just generally get people feeling like you know they're watching a show and not just um you know watching like strict work content. Right, right. That's pretty cool. Uh, let's talk about fundraising. So you also raised capital from Slack CEO, Stuart Butterfield. How was that process of convincing him that, hey, invest in venue? Um, I have no idea, to be honest with you, because um, okay. I think one of the advice, when we went to YC, one of the advice mm. that, uh, the one of the advice they gave us was the only person that should be involved in fundraising is the CEO. And the reason for that is to not distract the rest of your team from building good product because ultimately raising money doesn't make a successful company. Hmm. Building a good product does, right? right? And more time your team is spent worrying and thinking and talking about raising money, the less time they're spent, uh, they're spending uh, making the product better. So um, I didn't know about the funding until Jason messaged us one day and said, hey, uh, we're being offered like 3 million from Excel. And I'm like, oh, cool. And the same with the, um, like we, we had a board to track all this, but I never looked at it. Right. right. I just, one day when, um, like, you know, after Excel, like a few, a few weeks, months later, he was like, oh yeah, yeah we got, uh, these angels on board. I'm like, cool. Like, I don't know how you did that, but great work. That's pretty cool. So one day you wake up and you're like, all right, so we got some money in the bank. Yeah, basically. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. And yeah, like what is, what is your focus right now with, uh, when you are you guys planning to only focus on all hands? Or are you also getting on these one on one meetings? Yeah, so um, well, my personal focus is more around the engineering side. So um, hmm. I lead the engineering team day to day. And I help you now translate quarterly priorities, like you now we want this quarter to be focused on this past quarter was focused on event health, for example, right? Um, we wanted to be able to know that our platform is as stable as Zoom is, and when it's not, we wanted to know that it's happening and we know why it's happening so we can proactively fix it without needing to throw more engineering resources or operational resources at monitoring these events in real time by being physically on the page. Um, so that's, that was the quarter priority and the, you know, my, my own um, responsibility was making sure to actually, we can actually implement that. Um, but in terms of the company priorities, um, we're at the end of the quarter. 
the best chance I can give you is we're still talking about it. Um, right. I think it's important at this stage of startup to be malleable, to um, not have like plans that are, you know, a year long. It doesn't make sense at this stage for us to have like, uh, you know, goals for 2023. Mm. Uh, we'll take the quarter as they come because the learnings from one quarter will significantly impact the decisions you make for the next quarter. That makes sense. All right, man. What does your mom think now about you? <laughs> um, well, for the last seven years, my mom has uh, told me to go back to school. <laughs> um, but I think around um, the beginning of this year, like after YC, she started to chill out a bit. I was like, hey, mom, like, do you know what YC is? You should Google them, you know, like uh, here, Airbnb went through YC, right? And like uh, Brex went through YC, all these companies like, you know, this is uh, this is better than school. You know, like this is harder to get in than like than like Harvard. OK, like, mom, chill. Uh, so that's uh, yeah, she calmed down a bit. And then we when we raised the four million dollars, I sent her the article. And um, actually, when when Excel's money hit the bank account, um, I, I asked Jason to take a screenshot and I was like, and I forwarded it to my mom saying, mom, look, like, you know, um, I'm not struggling. Uh, your son <laughs> is doing fine. I don't need to go back to school. And I think she like, she really calmed down after that, right? Because right. she realized that like, you know, the, the things I'm working on are not uh, things that like, she could really uh, understand to the same degree that she understands like her work. Uh, so I think she had some comfort knowing that I could take care of myself. Definitely, man. I'm guessing you share, you send a photo of your dinner plate every single day to her. I'm eating more than a bun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. She actually, uh, she follows me on Instagram. So she every, sees everything that I'm doing. Oh, nice. And I love taking photos of food. So she sees everything. <laughs> nice, man. All right. This was really good, man. Thank you so much for hopping on. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me.